Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that contemplates issues related to cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we road test the Kia Stonic. Now, that's in the smallest category of SUVs. Now, that's nothing to do with being off-road capable, yet this did impress our testers, Fred and Evan. We have a reflection on a report from the Audit Office of New South Wales that highlights another government transport project that proceeded, apparently, without any effective administrative or technical oversight. There was no tender process, no understanding of the value for money, for example. And in the interview, we've talked in the last few weeks about certain traffic problems, including signposting. And of course, we know what the problem is. Or do we? This week, we talked to an expert in behaviour change who sets a pattern that could be applied in any aspect of transport planning, and that is the need to test with real people, not just do theoretical pontifications. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials, podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, or even our YouTube site and look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 16th of December 2023. We've been testing the Kia Stonic, which is in the smallest category of SUVs. The expression sports utility vehicle derived from a trend to provide more comfort to the rough and tough four-wheel drive segment. The SUV tag has now been stretched over a wide variety of cars and the definition is no more challenged than in this very small category. In many, but not all cases, the small SUVs are only just little sedans with a slightly taller body and absolutely no pretense to being an off-road vehicle. In the 11 months of sales so far this year in the light SUV category, the Mazda CX-3 has increased sales by nearly 50%, and while it was at the head of the market last year, it is now in a more dominant position with just under 30% of that category. The second best seller is the Kia Stonic, which we're testing today. The one vehicle in this category that is a standout in its approach is the Suzuki Jimny. This is a genuine off-road vehicle with its nippy features that can usually go where most rough and tough bigger four-wheel drives will venture and perhaps in some cases get there more easily. But apart from the Suzuki are the other light SUVs not much more than a cutesy tall hatchback. Well, for the Stonic, let's have a look at a few of the basics. It comes with a choice of two powertrains. A 1.4-litre four-cylinder petrol engine, non-turbo, powered through a six-speed automatic or manual transmission. This is available on the base model S and the next level up, Sport. Its fuel consumption is rated at 6.7 litres per 100 kilometres, although this rating does jump particularly in urban areas. The second powertrain, which is available in the GT Line variant, has a 1.0-litre three-cylinder turbocharged petrol engine driving through a seven-speed dual-clutch transmission. It is rated at a significantly lower 5.4 litres per 100 kilometres fuel consumption, and the fuel use penalty for driving in the city is not quite as steep. Both engines have 74 kilowatts of power, but the non-turbo has... 133 newton metres of torque and the turbo version a significantly higher but not enormous 
172 Nm. The turbo engine gets its maximum performance at lower revs. Although there are different state taxes around Australia, which may add hundreds of dollars to the price of a car, Kia currently lists the price for the Stonic to be the same in all states. A base model manual starts at $25,000 drive away, and you add $1,000 to get an automatic. In the middle range, sports model, the manual is $27,000 and the sports automatic is an extra one and a half grand. The top variant is the GT line with its dual clutch transmission and it's priced at $32,500 and that's $7,500 above the base model. Our test car was the GT line with their honeybee paint option. Now that's a yellow that is not quite as strong as say a banana skin but a bit more than a banana paddle pop. Being a vehicle in the smallest category and our road tester Fred being six foot tall, we had to start with the interior space. Fred, did you fit into it well? Yeah, yeah, amazingly well. Plenty of room, plenty of adjustment on the seat and the steering wheel. Including telescopic coming out towards you and quite often you get limited amounts in that area. In some cases, yes, but I think in this one, the, the combination of the amount of adjustment up and down, in and out on the steering wheel, plus the seat adjustment up and down and rearward, forward. I haven't got the seat in the rearmost position or the steering wheel in the forwardmost, so... Uh, Even someone over six feet would still have a good chance of fitting in? Absolutely, yes, and the seat can go quite low too. So uh, plenty of headroom. Yeah, given that we've got a sunroof. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The dial setup is a bit, bit oldie-worldy. Yeah, which I have to say, being an oldie-worldy person, I quite like. <laughs> so it is it is quite readable with a taco and speedo and then just a fuel gauge, temperature gauge, and then a, an electronic speed in the middle. It actually suits me quite nicely, a, an instrument panel or instrument cluster like that. None of it's cluttered. Not really, no. Probably the most number of buttons and that's on the steering wheel. Yeah, so they would take a little bit of getting the hang of as to what does certain things. Mm. In the interior, a bit hard and plasticky? It does smack of hard plastic, which is kind of what it is. Even the top of the dashboard and the doors all seem to be hard plastic rather than having a bit of soft plastic around. Mm. Steering wheel's quite nice so it's a, a nice shape with um, a good good diameter for gripping so that's quite good mm. and the driving of it how did you find we're not hugely powerful kind of not, not really a ball of fire but it seemed to go quite well trying in the eco mode and the sports mode sports mode it certainly um, picks up faster whatever they do for the change to go from eco to sport but it also sounds more well it's louder yeah it's got a more intrusive engine noise when you go to sport which is not necessarily a good thing because it's not not as if it's a sort of great sounding engine it's louder it's just louder yeah yeah and the dual clutch transmission it seemed to perform pretty well although sometimes you'd notice the changes gear changes more than more than is necessarily desirable. It seemed to not thump through them, but you'd actually notice a gear change. And that's particularly around urban areas where you're not pushing it. 
Yes, and particularly if you say accelerate, then you back off, you'll feel a couple of gear changes, hmm. both up and down. Of which it gives a bit of a bleep on the accelerator, well, <laughs> the engine. Yes, which I think is a bit of a crazy thing to do on a car of this type, blipping between on the down changes. It's not as if it's about to get huge compression, braking of, of the instantaneous no. braking when you go to a lower gear. No, I don't think it would suffer from rear wheel lock-up or wheel lock-up as a result of the auto transmission going down a gear. <laughs> Front wheel. Front wheel, yep, yep. <laughs> it's got a manual handbrake. Very conventional. Same with the, the auto transmission control. Very conventional, just with park reversed. Uh, neutral and drive, and then the um, uh, sequential change off to one side. Now, I'm sitting in the passenger seat, and I put the seat right back. I've got nearly nine inches from my knees to the glove box. That's pretty good. If I wanted a bit more room for people in the back, I've certainly got the option to give it to them without compromising me too much. Yeah, uh, certainly for the front seat. They've made it so you could actually fit tall people in it, Mm. Um, but... You would be compromised in the rear from that point of view, but you could certainly move the front seat forward to get more more rear leg room. Do you like the look of it on the outside? Not too bad. Yeah, kind of a pleasant shape without being anything extraordinary. Well, we've had little, for want of a better word, and this is an S called an SUV, we've had some pretty quirky-looking ones, haven't we? This, to my mind, seems like a nice balance with a bit of style to it, not just a boxy shape, but equally not unusual or even weird-looking. That's probably a fair description. And the colour, banana yellow? Not too sure. It's not too bad. It's not a bad yellow. It's not like the old Chrysler mustard, hot mustard. (laughs) That always looked a bit flat. Didn't it? This is obviously very bright, more modern paints. Some of the mustards, do you think? Uh, or was it just too mustardy? I think it was too mustardy, the other one. This one is more in the yellow shade without being a bright yellow. But a strong yellow nonetheless. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So, Fred, this is with the seat right back. You've obviously got uh, very compromised for your knees. I don't think I'd be sitting in here for too long. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put the seat forward in the front and see what it leaves you with uh, that room. Okay. Well, you've got room for your knees there. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Although, would you fit in there now in the front? Uh, We'll we'll double check that. But, I mean, I I could come back an inch or two without... For sure, yeah. Yeah, without yeah. being too yeah. too bad yeah. for you. Yeah. Okay, let's see if I uh, how I go on the front. Sit back in it and see. Ah, uh... oh, yeah, I've probably taken it back too far. Yeah. Oh, but but by the by, they're not touching. But uh, I would really. Yeah. Yeah. I want to have it an inch or two. All right. Yeah, it's up to you. It's up to you, these aren't embedded too bad no no that's okay actually you know the other important bit i can get my feet right under the seat oh yeah ah well that's very important so its functionality and its presentation were surprisingly good for what many would consider an entry level sized vehicle 
But there are those that want more than just a useful vehicle. They want one that is enjoyable to drive. Our other road tester, Evan Jones, who has a great passion for performance cars and motor racing, is not a person that is easily impressed, but... Yeah, the little key is you put it into sport mode. It's a great little car, actually. Okay, tell us about it. It's you got know. like it. it okay, from appearance-wise, it's very um, uh, nondescript. It just blends in with the. Uh, uh, yeah, but I think it, it it doesn't try too hard. I think it's got a bit of character, but not not necessarily bling. Oh yeah, yeah, no. So it just blends in nicely. Yeah, it's just part of the crowd. It's so easy to see. I didn't realise you'd got past me until I saw, hang on, there's a little yellow thing up there. Yeah, the colour's good in that respect. But um, performance-wise, it gets up and goes and handles nicely. And it changes down. It has distinct changes when you're braking. It <laughs> changes down. Well, it's a dual clutch. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that explains a lot. Because yeah, that would help with the performance. No, I'm very, it handles really nicely. I could definitely live with it. It is a balance between a hot hatch mm. a, and a general hatch, yeah. functional hatch. Yeah, I call it a warm hatch, yeah. <laughs> a warm hatch. Yeah. No, it's good. Rather than necessarily an SUV. Yeah. I like that expression. I think that was a fairly simple layout dial. Yep. Yep. One of the things I found that about it was that when I set the cruise control it didn't tell me what speed it was set at. No it doesn't, it doesn't. I couldn't see that. You just got to see, oh, you just got to look at the speed and think, oh it's not moving. But <laughs> well if you then go from 60 to 80 you might click, are you clicking up one at a time or five at a time or ten at a time? That's a good point, yeah. Uh, so you don't know. And there's, no, and there's no digital speedo at all. Ah, uh, you can zing through the. You can get it. Oh, can you? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Not that it was bothering me, but yes. Yeah. No. The, well, it's like one of those classics that you've got to. Yeah. You would have uh, adjustment and seat. I was good. I was quite comfortable. Um, yeah, my large bum's always a. Um, a challenge for most cars anyway but no it was good it was it was comfortable um radio is really good uh, if you're looking at that type of thing and it had a sunroof so the headroom was our oh, headroom was fine yeah mm. uh, visibility all-round visibility is really good which is important um brakes are nice and progressive it's a car you could definitely live with no problem at all in summary, I liked the look of the Kia Stonic. It had an overall balanced and purposeful appearance that came from its design, not just a few tack-on features. I could certainly fit in it, and there was enough adjustment to carry four adults or two adults and three children at a pinch. It's got a few quirks, but with Kia's seven-year warranty and good results in reliability surveys, it is a tempting way to get into the new car market. This is Overdrive across Australia. A report from the Audit Office of New South Wales highlights another government project that proceeded, apparently, without administrative or subject awareness oversight. The report assesses whether the Department of Consumer Service complied with legislation and New South Wales government policy when it directly negotiated with Duncan Solutions to procure back-end services 
relating to a park-and-pay application. The park-and-pay app developed by the department enables users to locate and pay for parking remotely using their smart mobile device. Some of the points from the audit were the department failed to establish the grounds for entering a direct negotiation procurement strategy without any competitive tendering for services for the park-and-pay app. It rushed a decision to trial the app in the rocks without considering how this might affect its procurement obligations. There is no evidence that the procurement achieved value for money. The department did not consider how it would ensure value for money, nor did it demonstrate an adequate understanding of what is meant by value for money on this occasion. There was a lack of clarity, transparency and oversight of the relationship between the Minister's office and the staff in the department. We have approached the company to see if they would like to comment and we will report on any feedback we have received in the future. You're listening to Overdrive. I just got back from the Australian Drive Day for the Ineos Grenadier. Four-wheel drive enthusiasts will know that this all-new vehicle was conceived on the back of a five-pound note in the Grenadier pub in England. The Grenadier is a mix of old-school four-wheel drive functionality with modern technology. But not too much, thankfully. The makers have eschewed many intrusive safety features and kept it as simple as possible. What they didn't miss out on, though, was true four-wheel drive capability. It has it by the bucketful. We took the Grenadier over some interesting and moderately difficult tracks, and it handled them with ease. On-road ride and handling is more like a premium SUV rather than a rough four-wheel drive, and inside you can opt for the level of luxury you want. The closest vehicle to it would perhaps be the Land Rover Defender, the new one. There are three models to choose from, with two inline six-cylinder engines from BMW and one eight-speed ZF automatic transmission. The Ineos Grenadier is absolutely worth a drive if you are looking for a premium four-wheel drive wagon. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. As we have discussed in recent weeks, the opening of the new tunnel under Roselle, just west of the CBD in Sydney, had a problem with signposting, which kicked off a litany of complaints and negative headlines about the project and about a more general contempt for transport planning by government. There are many systemic problems in transport planning in Australia, but the issue with signposting goes to the very core of our dysfunctional policy making. Transport programs and projects are too often based on theory, political whim, vested interests and simplistic assumptions. Badly missing are effective ways to assess the real nature and variety of consumer needs and what affects behaviour choices. Current processes lack ways to truly engage with people about the reason and the nature of trips they choose to make and the mode of transport they choose to use. Liz Ampt is an international expert in travel surveys and founder of Concepts of Change, an organisation that facilitates behaviour change by helping people to help themselves. I've known and respected Liz and her work for many years, and so after the recent problems in Sydney, I asked her about the need for signposting to be designed by people who are aware of behaviour, not just graphic design and standards. Liz, very gently, noted that my question was all wrong. And in fact, what you wrote in your email was very interesting because you were talking about doing things without testing them, really. And that 
for me, is so important. So in some ways, what RAC is doing in the southwest is testing it so, you know, they'll know what's going to happen. But I was thinking about all the projects that I have done which are such low cost and they test messages in signs. And that for I'll give a couple of examples. Both of them were, in fact, in Victoria for Vic Roads mostly where they had the initiative to think if we're going to put in some signs or not necessarily road signs, although that's what they were testing, but even signs in cars which say look for bikes, you should test them. So we were able to test the signs they're currently using and show that they were not correct but and very simply change them and then they chose they changed the actions. So the testing involves testing whether the sign creates the behaviour that you want, not whether people like the sign or not. Does it actually create the behaviour that you want? And everybody knows that information doesn't change behaviour, or certainly not alone. There are many techniques, but the technique that we use is developed by a guy called David Sleth from Melbourne at the Communications Research Institute. It's really simple. You start with setting up behavioural response criteria. So you just list, we want this sign, say, to do the to achieve these things. And you put it in a spreadsheet, so it's quite rigorous. And then you observe people or ask people a set of questions to do with the, in this case, the signs. And they have to say exactly the, that this sign is telling me to drive slower, not to say, you know, the sign is yellow and therefore looks very nice. And you can use that testing mechanism in all sorts of things. I remember testing it in Sustainability Victoria on their bins, which were trying to tell them what to put in various bins. And, you know, they put on the word co-mingling. Well, what on earth does co-mingling mean? And so, um, you know, when people, when you ask people, what should you put in the bin? And if they said the wrong thing, the word was not working. And the client simply found it very difficult. But everyone knows it's co-mingling. But we showed you needed to say something more specific. Sorry, I've skipped around, but, you know, the principle is you need to test it. And it's not very hard. It's really quite simple. It's not as if you have to put the sign up in front of the Roselle interchange and get people to drive past and then work out what they say. You know, it's not, you can do this in a room. In fact, with pedestrians, we've done done that in Oxford where you got people, you put the sign at about the height a pedestrian would see it and the size and you got people to walk past about the speed of a pedestrian such that they were mimicking what would happen if they were walking on a footpath. So there are lots of ways to think it through. In many ways this epitomises the entire politicised approach to transport planning which favours impressing the electorate in what projects look like rather than how they could produce achievable and balanced community benefits. And it favours making decisions that are only assumed to be good for the community. The Transport Authority produced animations on how to use the new system, which showed you sailing through the new tunnels without much other traffic to distract you from the joy of the experience. When I mentioned this to my son, he asked, did they ask the people what they thought? In other words, did they use the animation as an opportunity to see how people reacted 
rather than assuming that just by telling people, you would then know what they are thinking. Poor communication to drivers is an issue in other ways. Emeritus Professor Mike Regan from the University of New South Wales, whom we had on this program, thinks we have the same problem with modern cars, excessive information and operating decisions that require choices from an array of symbols might be more of a distraction than a help. In fairness to the New South Wales Road Authority, there have been positive examples in the past of trying to get more than a theoretical design. For those with sight disability, the then New South Wales Department of Main Roads developed audio tactile push buttons, which were extensively tested in design stages, both in-house and with reps from the Royal Blind Society, and this included recognition by partially sighted people. The result has been praised around the world. The New South Wales Department of Main Roads also developed a world-leading system of coordinated and adaptive traffic signal control, SCATS, which was launched in 1975. The key to its success, and it's been used in 35 countries around the world, was understanding driver behaviour. The SCAT system is currently under review. It is worrying, though, that there have been recent examples of the current transport for New South Wales having a poor corporate memory of the real experiences of the SCATS project. David Sless and colleagues developed this uh, diagnostic testing, is the name of the, what he called it that. They developed it very interestingly for AIDS medication. So, so it's a long time ago. <laughs> But the point being, you can't take the wrong medication if you've got AIDS. And they tested it and tested it so that you knew, A, how many tablets to take, B, when to take them, C, what to do if you missed, you know, things like that. And they and you set criteria. So the criteria might be that 80% of the people understand the message 80% of the time. Or in the case of AIDS, it might be 100%, 100% of the time. And they've done work for Telstra Bills, a bit like you mentioned NRMA, where they don't make it 100%, they make it some lower number. But, yeah, we use it all the time because the other part of the method is you take a very small sample but it's diverse people. So David Sless always says make sure you've got a professor in there on the one extreme of interesting character and someone who doesn't read things very often and then a whole lot in between. So you only have eight people. And you show them the test and then you go back and make changes because you can be sure that if they don't get it right, it's my fault, the person who designed it. Planning documents for the Roselle Tunnel and Expanded Road System predicted peak hour congestion on the arterial roads. Added to this was a lack of testing of how people would cope with the new system and what would be the difficulties for local traffic. There is also considerable evidence the government's overall approach to data collection, computer modelling and management structures, which lack technical awareness, are inappropriate for tracking and understanding both the short and long-term nature of our city needs. Most often, the focus is on justifying a preconceived idea, or more often, focusing on the project rather than identifying people's real needs and decision-making processes. This is Overdrive across Australia.
The latest car sales results are out and it's looking like a boom year. To be fair though, that's mostly because of the supply meeting pre-orders rather than a strong order book going forward. Results in November exceeded 112,000 deliveries. It looks like a tussle between the Ford Ranger and the Toyota Hilux for the top selling vehicle for 2023 and the result will be determined by how many vehicles they can get into the country before the year end. Toyota is still the number one brand but it has been severely hampered by supply issues. Mazda is number two followed by Ford, Kia and Hyundai. The next five are Mitsubishi, MG, Tesla, Subaru and Isuzu Ute. The top three selling vehicles in November were Utes and the rest were SUVs of some sort. Petrol remains the dominant fuel choice, followed by diesel, then hybrid and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Liz Amped, Fred Brain, Evan Jones and Mark Wesley for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or look up the socials and podcasts for cars, transport, culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.